Hello and welcome to the Now Next podcast summer series. I'm one of your co-hosts, Mary Claire Kunkel, here with the Reverend Drew Tucker. And we're talking all about navigating your meaningful now and your meaningful next. Hello, Drew. Hello, that's me. I I am the co-host. And with us today to talk about vocation, we have Richard Hain. Hello. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. Thank you for inviting me. We're glad you're here. Excited to be able to have some conversation with you. So a big part of Now Next is vocation, which here we've defined as any meaningful life-giving work for the world. But I'm curious for you and your work with the church and theology and all these things, how would you define vocation? It's kind of a tricky question because the connotation in the Webster's Third International Dictionary is job. But I have tended to think of it in terms of calling. In a sense, our calling underlies our jobs. We may have a lot of different jobs broadly conceived. I mean, family, it sounds awkward to say job and family as as though family is a job. But if you have kids, you know that it is that as well. I was going to say, you haven't met my family. I love them, but they're a whole lot of work. So vocation implies, as uh, Drew said, something outside of yourself that uh, you respond to from inside of yourself. And I'm counting on Drew's book. A lot Uh, of pressure, Drew. I hope you live up to it. I have never been more prepared to disappoint someone than this moment in life. (laughs) Vocation or calling can be really, really powerful, but it certainly comes at us in a bunch of different ways. For example, in the second grade, Miss Wisner, I mean, it's kind of funny that I remember the name of my second grade teacher. Miss Wisner asked the class, okay, what do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I held up my hand and I said, a priest. My family has been Lutheran since the time and neighborhood of Martin Luther. Miss Wisner knew my mother because they were both teachers. And so she told my mother and they kind of laughed together. It was sort of like a train on which the track is laid out in front of you. And all you have to do is stay on track. In a sense, I didn't decide to become a minister, nor did I particularly give much thought to going to Capitol and Trinity. It was close by, it was Lutheran. I was gonna go to seminary. That's all there was to it. It's just like you're looking in front of yourself and okay, what is the next step? Okay, there's this one and then there's the next one and then there's the one after that. And then somewhere down the line, there's a track goes off to the side and you find yourself on that track. And that's, I think, much more common for young people today. One of my sons said, you know, you don't expect to get a job and keep it for your lifetime. I didn't expect to do anything else for the rest of my life. That was it. As a young person, the idea of having just one job for the rest of my life is terrifying to me. Like, I don't want to do that. And so I find it interesting how that's just a difference that's happened over generations that I just, I hate feeling boxed in. And so this idea of the freedom of it evolving and becoming something different is exciting, but it also has that downside of kind of feeling like you don't know where you're going. Whereas, you know, seeing the track ahead of you is really comforting. But I know for me, I'd be like, what if I just jumped off the train and hitchhiked somewhere? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it is comforting. And so you don't have to ask a whole bunch of questions. You just look ahead and say, okay, that's next. 
And it was sort of like that with getting married and having children at the beginning. Okay, you look around, the other seminarians are having children. Okay, I guess, uh, you know, it's time to get married. I guess it's time to <laughs> have children. The culture of that era laid itself so heavily upon us that it didn't seem as though we had choices that we did actually have. We could have gone in any of a hundred ways, but we didn't really know it. At least I didn't really know it. I think that's still kind of common in different situations, not necessarily in the career and family situations that we've talked about, but I was just doing premarital counseling with a young couple and they were talking about family traditions and really framing it in either or options. And one of the things I encouraged them to do was to think about the other options that exist that they may have already said no to. So they can actively consider that they have chosen not to do something or that they might have a choice that they hadn't considered before. So my brother-in-law, for instance, he and his wife they don't travel to see family on Christmas because they wanted to create a new tradition themselves rather than figure out, do we spend this year with your family or my family? How do we make that kind of thing work? Sometimes that, that, that sense of really considering I have more choices than I think I do can be really enlightening, but also it can add a weight to the process that maybe, like you've said, you didn't have to think about it. So you just did the thing. And so there's a, there's a cost right. benefit ratio there that is different for all of us. I had a, a glimmer of a change that would take a long time to happen. When I was in seminary, my senior year, the dean called me in and he said, are you planning to go to graduate school or take a parish? I had not thought about graduate school, but he had planted a seat. When I finished seminary, you know, they ask you what sort of assignment you want to have. So I told them I wanted to be an associate minister because I wasn't sure I had the talent and skills to take on the responsibility of, a, of being a parish pastor. I mean, it's an enormous job, enormous job. They didn't give me an assignment as a, an associate pastor. They asked me to start a mission church in Maine. And so there aren't a lot of Lutherans in Maine. And so I started a mission church there. They gave me a mimeograph machine. Uh, you can look it up. Those of you who don't know what that is, and they gave me a building that was about two-thirds built, a, part, a parish, a, a church and a parsonage and debt for both buildings, a startup sum of money, 50 Bibles, 50 hymnals, and folding chairs. I found a Seventh-day Adventist who didn't have worship on Sunday morning to become our organist. And so uh, we started a mission parish there. And I am proud to say that I was there for the 50th anniversary of that church. And next year will be the 60th anniversary. And if I'm able, I expect to go back there and preach on the 60th anniversary of that congregation. That's really great. This is 62 to 65, is time period. That's when the civil rights movement began to be renewed. I had a couple come to me and they said, the husband is African-American and the wife is Anglo. Can we come to your church? First time I had ever been in a, in a house with a married couple, one of whom was the woman was white and the man was black. I had been in some uh, black settings and my youngest son is Kenyan and Ukrainian, but never a married couple of mixed race. I took it to the church council. It was a difficult discussion, but they agreed that they could come and they did come for a while. Nonetheless, the civil rights movement was gearing up. It got my attention. I became convicted in my heart, in my soul. It burrowed into my very being. And I decided I didn't know squat and that I didn't know even how to start to deal with 
the situation we were facing in American society. So I went to the University of Chicago for five years in ethics and society and uh, was offered a job at Sonoma State. It was kind of a swinging hipster kind of time and, you know, dancing on campus. But while I was there, I got a call from Bright Divinity School at Texas Christian University. So I went to interview there, took a position there and was there for 17 years. I taught church and society. It was kind of a tough pull in some ways because the faculty was all white, all male, and older. They were pretty good on theology. They were pretty good on Bible. They were pretty good on pastoral care. But if you're talking about gender issues, race issues, gay and lesbian issues, concerns, people, not just issues, but people. This was Texas. You hear things about Texas now, this right. is Texas in the 1970s and 80s. Bright Divinity School is related to the Disciples of Christ. It's in Fort Worth. And some of those students, Fort Worth was the biggest city they'd ever been to. And they had come from fairly, some of them, from fairly uh, restricted or limited environments. Although I also had some Vietnam veterans, and they were a whole different a whole different thing. I'd send them to the hospital emergency room, public hospital, not a private one, and just sit in the emergency room for three or four hours. And, you know, some of them had great experiences. Some of them, you know, they just sat there and saw people go through, but they saw what kind of people are in a public hospital on Saturday night. One student reported that he was sitting there and they brought two guys in, sort of side by side on gurneys. And suddenly one guy raised up, had a knife in his hand and started stabbing the other guy because they had been in a fight. That's how they got on gurneys in the first place. One female student went on a police ride. I sent them on police rides. Uh, they came to this apartment where the guy supposedly had killed this woman. They brought him down. They put him in the back seat of the car. She's sitting in the front seat. Then they go back upstairs to collect evidence. The guy tilts his head, his hat falls off. And what he said to her was literally, please, ma'am, could you put my hat back on? And she realized that he may have been a murderer, or at least was accused of murder. He may have done a horrible thing, but he was still a human being. And so, you know, sent students to NAACP meetings. I sent them to, <laughs> went with them because they were kind of timid about it to a gay bar. And a gay bar in Fort Worth in the 1970s was not the most upscale place you're going to find. Uh, I took a group there when they were having a Miss Texas drag show. So anyhow, did a lot of stuff. What is the goal of teaching church and society? So some of our listeners who might not understand what that means can get a good sense of what church and society is all about. I think it is to, to help them understand the world that they are called to minister in, and especially if you have a sort of more or less liberation theology point of view, where you start is with those who are suffering the most, with those who are the outcasts, the discriminated. Since I was going to send students into the community, someone helped me find a social worker who took me around to different homes. You need to know if you're a minister that there are people in your community who may not have shoes or who may not have enough to eat or who don't have clothes that they can wear to school and be accepted by the other kids. And then along with that, you teach theology. Uh, you teach uh, black theology. You teach, I, I introduced the first women's course in the university. You teach uh, feminist theology, uh, the kinds of theology that match the social conditions of those who are left behind or or oppressed in in society
I'm curious, where did you get the title for your book, We Carry the Flame, from? Yeah, it's We Carry the Fire, but that's that's close enough. I'll oh, no. settle, hey, I'll, I'll settle Can I re-ask flame. the question so I don't look dumb? <laughs> <laughs> the title comes from Cormac McCarthy's Pulitzer-winning novel, The Road, and the inspiration came from working at Red for the World. Going through graduate school and teaching, I became increasingly convinced of the importance of politics and public policy. And so I started applying for jobs in Washington, and I got a job as a grassroots organizer at Bread for the World. Bread for the World is a lobbying organization, and it's like your Ohio Hunger Network, okay? Uh, except it deals with a variety of issues on hunger and poverty for people in the United States and around the world because U.S. foreign assistance and U.S. AIDS policies affect people in other parts of the world. And so we have the chance to uh, lobby Congress to help people abroad. Sometimes that money's well spent, sometimes it's not well spent. So I got this job as grassroots organizer and I traveled. My route was Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Maryland, Delaware, and Pennsylvania. Red for the World is a Christian organization, so I'd travel to college campuses, congregations, and I'd fly into, say, Dallas, and I'd speak one place at a, at a morning Sunday school, and then I'd preach at their church, and then I'd meet with a local group of Red for the World members in the afternoon, and then I'd drive to Northern Louisiana and speak to some people there. Um, and some of these stories are, are in, the, in the book. I met with these people and I became totally inspired. They had kids, they had jobs, they had dance lessons, they had soccer practice, they had their church, they had the church suppers, they had the, the local Meals on Wheels, the local food bank that they worked at, um, and all those sort. And yet on top of that, they found time to organize people in their congregation to write letters, to visit their members of Congress, to write opinion editorials for the local newspaper. And so they totally inspired me. And it was out of that inspiration that I came to, came to think of them as people who carry the fire. So I did that. And then I moved into Bread for the World Institute after a while. And that's where I did the international work. That's really great that to have that kind of work that connects the local and global concerns in ways that are inspiring rather than suffocating, right? Like I think there are some times when we look at those things where we feel like it's overwhelming and we can't do anything about it. And so sometimes we just give up because there's so much work to be done rather than realize because the work is so related that working to solve issues globally can also solve issues locally. Working to relieve suffering locally can also work to relieve suffering globally. Yeah, and we inspired each other. I came and tried to lift them up and they lifted me up while doing it. And I found that with internationally, there's gonna be a, a webinar on the on the book and we're going to have the head of the largest muslim women's organization in indonesia they have a project called eco sharia sharia means struggle it's eco struggle talking with someone from the church of sweden with a muslim cleric who is an expert in muslim law in kenya and a woman who is the head of a very large apostolic group of women in one of the countries of africa I've forgotten at the moment and just planning a meeting with those people and realizing that there are people all over the world every day 
who get up and say, how can I make the world a better place? It's just, to me, the, the work is, is inspiring. It's hard. Mm. And there's not a day when you don't think about quitting, probably. But there's also not a day when you don't forget that there are people who need you to keep going. And it sounds to me like that's some of the connection about carrying the fire, right? Like there's something burning within you, but it's not yours alone. It's connected to others and it's connected to a purpose beyond yourself. And that's why it's we carry the fire, not I carry the fire. It would be extremely arrogant to say, I'm the fire carrier. That's where you get dictators and folks like that. You know, they think they by themselves can do these things. It's a social communal thing. What advice would you give someone around my age who's in like their early 20s or even teenagers about what we can do to start carrying the fire or prepare to have the fire handed over to us? First of all, I do still continue to believe in charitable activity. And when you go to work in that uh, soup kitchen or that food bank or whatever it is, you talk to the people who come to get the food. You sit down with the people in the soup kitchen. Some of them will talk to you and some of them won't. You know, I mean, some of them don't want to, they, they don't know what you're up to. They don't know, they don't trust other people. That itself is, is a way of learning. And then begin to see how these individuals connect with larger systems and programs that either help them or hurt them or sometimes do both that there are larger issues you know i mean you have to respect the regulations of the place you're in but begin to connect that with the policies that either lead them to be in that position or are helping remove them also books part of my conviction about race came through reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, Nobody Knows My Name, The Invisible Man, A Letter from a Birmingham Jail. I used to teach a course in which I gave them a novel to read as the final exam. I said, read the book and tell me how this relates to the course. Put yourself on the line and find other people who are doing it. You'll learn from them, they'll learn from you, and it takes both of you. It takes we to carry the fire. It just does. How does that all connect with your work at the UN? I, I know you've done some pretty great things there too. So, so connect some dots there for me. We were establishing relationships with the uh, World Health Organization in Geneva. So I was there a couple times to make presentations and, and try to get money <laughs> and worked with European agencies. But the most sustained relationship was with the UN food agencies in Rome. I worked with them and helped found the More and Better Coalition. It was a group of farmers and others from the Philippines and Sri Lanka and uh, various places in Africa who were trying to influence the policies of the UN agencies, just as we in the at Bread for the World were trying to influence the policies of the US government. You worked toward the Sustainability 2030 goals, right? Oh, yes. Thank you. Thanks for the opening. Yeah, after I retired, I went to Lithuania for a semester, and then I came back and I did two interims in parishes that were without pastors. So finally, after all those years of, of doing other things, I came back to being a parish pastor. So I thought, well, okay, I've finished my, my interims. What do I do next? That was August of 2015. In September of 2015, the UN adopted a new set of goals. 193 countries agreed. They don't all do it. They don't all do it well, but they agreed to support 17 goals for the year 2030. Things like end hunger, gender equality, health, education, climate change, 
sustainable forests, sustainable waterways, uh, and so forth. So I began to put together a team of retired people since they had some time. My former bishop says we need to get some young people <laughs> because none of the team are under 65, okay? Well, to help us with our video stuff, Mary Claire. <laughs> You um, rang. And so we go to congregations and we've started going to retirement communities because there are a lot of people there who care about the world, uh, who are still very able, and even some of them have money and time. Some of them attend their, still attend their old congregations. They can go back to those congregations and and try and get something going. And you know, we say, take the issue that's close to your heart. You don't have to do all 17 goals. You're just gonna frustrate. You should know about them. You should know that people around the world are working on these things, but pick the one that's close to your heart. And, and that brings me back to Mary Claire's earlier question. Is feminism important? Yes. Is racism important? Yes. Is education for children important? Yes. Is hunger, you, you can't do it all. So pick the one that is close to your heart. And because it's close to your heart, you may sustain the energy because it is hard work, but you'll learn a huge amount and you'll feel you're part of a, a broader world. I think that's a really important reminder. We emphasize a lot that our vocations do not include saving the world. We cannot accomplish the fullness of God's mission on our own, but instead the things that we do contributes to that overall thing. So I love that, that framing that you give us of choosing a thing or emphasizing a thing that's close to your own heart, because that helps us find, I think, our fit with the purpose beyond us, right? There's a purpose within us, that fire that we care, but that, like you said, it's not I do it. It's something that contributes to a fire that is bigger than any of us. So we ask this to all of our guests at the end of the show. What do you wish you knew about vocation as a kid? As a kid, the word would have been meaningless to me. Yes. Fair. <laughs> I describe my situation as like a train moving down a pre-laid track, and only much later did it go off on other tracks that I did not expect from my life. I guess I wish I had realized I had more choice. Not that I regret any of the tracks I was on. I don't. But if I had realized the breadth of possibilities I think I would have made some different choices along the way. For sure, I would have made some different choices along the way. And my life would have been probably healthier, happier, and more productive. For example, I always worked 100 hours a week. I mean, that was a given. Oh, you know, well, that probably contributed to the divorce that happened along the way. Okay. Uh, well, I'm happy now. I remarried. I have a lovely wife, smart, accomplished, professional, uh, supportive, and a, a stepdaughter in addition to the four other children. But if I had been more attentive to family, things might have taken a different track, or they might not have. Uh, but that would be a story I can't tell. Richard, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate the time. We are so excited to read your book. Would you tell our listeners where they can get your book, where they can find it? Yeah, We Carry the Fire. The subtitle is Family and Citizenship as Spiritual 
Calling, Family and Citizenship as Spiritual Calling. It was published by Church Publishing Incorporated, which is the official publishing house of the Episcopal Church. And it's available on Amazon.com in paper or Kindle. It's also available around the world on other international platforms. Uh, anywhere books are sold, you should be able to order a copy. Well, thank you. And thank you for continuing to represent Capital and Trinity so well. We appreciate you as an alum and as a friend of the Center of Faith and Learning and as a co-worker in this mission of God as we carry the fire together. So you take care and we'll look forward to seeing what's up next for you. Thank you and blessings to you and yours. Thank you so much. Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode was recorded remotely over Zoom. Funding for Now Next is thanks to the generous Philip N. Knudsen Endowment and Lutheran Campus Ministry. Our co-hosts are Drew Tucker, Mary Claire Hunkel, and Sammy DiBiasto. Our podcast producer is yours truly, and our seaworthy theme music, Fiddle DD, is by Shane Ivers.